Our main focus will be 21 through 30, but I want to back up to 19 because I want to uh, initially touch on that going back to last week. So John 13, 19. So Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, and then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. You may be seated. We're going to kind of point, put all four accounts of this, of this matter in regard to uh, Jesus and Judas uh, this morning. And so uh, you'll just stay where you are in, in John 13, but we will look at um, a number of things. So in the beginning of John chapter th- 13, Jesus knew that the hour had come that he would depart from the world. He knew that that everything had been put into his hands by his father, and so he knew everything. And so we learn that, verse 3, that um, everything had been given to his hands. And so that, that means that he also knew everything that Judas was about to do and everything that was going to come um, from that. It almost seems, when you look at the life of Judas, that he was trying to get out and trying to figure a way that he could kind of get away. We know that from what the writers tell us, that he used to, he, he kind of kept control of the money bag that kind of, where it paid for different things, probably food and maybe sometimes lodging, whatever the case may be. But he used to put his hand in there and he would keep some of the money for himself. In John chapter 12, just a, probably a few weeks from this, very soon, um, Jesus is in Bethany. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes in. She's got an expensive jar of ointment and perfume and she breaks it she anoints she pours it on Jesus and anoints him and Judas gets upset and is like okay why wasn't this sold and so that we could give money to the poor and we know that likely what his thought was this would have been nice for me to put my hand in there and get some of this for myself and then we know that he betrays Christ for the gift of 30 pieces of silver he kind of looks like a guy about ready to run he's kind of done he's kind of done with the Jesus agenda and the Jesus plan, and Jesus isn't going to get onto Judas's agenda. And so he is a thief at heart. And we will see today that Satan literally enters the life of Judas. He's a fascinating study um, in regard to, he had the best discipler in the history of the world. 
Can you imagine what it must have been like to be discipled by Jesus himself? So Judas was in the right environment. He heard the right words. He had really good, strong friends who became the first church planters and starters and great missionaries in the early days of the gospel. And yet Judas was lost and never bought into the plan of repenting of his sin and following Christ. None of this was a surprise to Jesus. There are three Old Testament passages that speak of the one who would betray. And I want to just read them to us. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. And, um, but in Isaiah, I did that again. I had trouble in the first service of saying Isaiah for Psalm. Okay, I'm going to try and get this right. One mistake. Psalm 55 tells us this in verse 12. This is about... Judas, an early picture of what he would be and who he would do. So listen to this. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house when we walked in the throng. And then Psalm 55, 20 speaks about Judas as well or in, in regard to how he responded to his brothers, the other 11. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant, his friendship connected with them. And then it describes Judas's speech and what he was like. His speech was smooth as butter, Yet war was in his heart, his words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. So Jesus would have known Psalm 55 and its instruction about what would take place in regard to his betrayer. The prophet Zechariah also wrote about Judas in verses 12 and 13 of Zechariah 11. Listen to these words. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, Give me my wages, and if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of silver, and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And the most famous one that Jesus spoke was he referenced last week in Psalm 41, verse 9. This is what it says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. One of the things that's important for us to see as we begin this morning is the Old Testament gave Jesus an understanding. Jesus, again, he's a living incarnate word. He would have known these Old Testament texts about the one who would be his betrayer. So he had one that was like his friend, Judas they, they had spent time together. They had laughed together. They would eaten together. They had traveled together. They would had spiritual discussions together. They were connected. They would go to the house of the Lord and worship together. And so he speaks of that in Psalm 55. He also speaks of the betrayal of the brothers. That his talk among them was smooth as butter and soft as oil. That he played the part really well. But in the end, he even betrayed not just Christ, but he betrayed his brothers. Jesus referenced... Psalm 41.9 last week, um, where it says that he lifts his heel. And I talked last week, in case you weren't here, it's that picture of 
watching kids on a playground running and somebody sticks the foot out to trip someone. This is what Judas did. He was trying to trip up Jesus and get Jesus onto Judas's agenda. And then also we will see today is that Jesus will take bread and he will dip it into um, this creamy substance that they would make back then full of dates and raisins and other things and he would offer it to Judas it was the prized initial morsel and he would offer this and so so we need to understand this Judas was not a surprise at all to Jesus there wasn't anything about this that Jesus did not know as a matter of fact in John chapter 6 early on or about the middle of his ministry Jesus has already told the 12 that one of you is a devil so he was aware of the reality of Judas's heart and what Judas would do. So before we get fully into the text this morning, I want to make three statements that are important to understand as we read this. And the first statement is this in regard to understanding the sovereign will of God in all things. The first thing is this, is though Judas will betray Jesus, Judas is not in control of anything. The Father was in full control of everything that is happening that we are reading in the text here. So nothing was happening haphazardly as if man were in control of things. But this was according to the Father's plan that Jesus would be betrayed and he would be killed. So I remind us, this is a God-centered world. This is not a man-centered world. The Lord has always reigned. The Lord will continue to reign. So all of this is in the full control of the Father. Secondly, Jesus was not some unwitting bystander who wasn't aware of what is taking place, and he was just kind of having to react as things went along. He was aware of everything fully that was taking place in regard to Judas. Everything that is happening, he knew about it. Yes, he is hated. Yes, he is the focus of of Judas' frustration and Satan. But in every aspect of this, Christ found the greatest comfort in the midst of his betrayal by trusting the Father's will. And even this was a part of the Father's will for him. So Jesus' skin would embrace all of it, for he found the greatest comfort in following through with God's will. So all of history, every aspect of history, past, present, in anything that would take place in the future, they are connected to the things that we are reading here. God was going to use Judas's betrayal, even in the midst of of all of this, to get Jesus to the cross. And again, the Old Testament, it even predicted this. So let's look at the second thing. We'll begin to walk through the text now. So the context of this is Judas. And so when we read verse 21, the first part of this, this is a reference to what is going on with Judas. So after saying these things, and he's even said it um, earlier in John chapter 13, he had spoken there about um, what would happen and take place, that there would be one who would lift his heel. So the context of all of this is in regard to Judas. And so it says in the first part of 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So let's talk about this. What, what was affecting him so much? We know that the cross, no doubt, was on his mind. He was troubled by all of the things that were going to come. But in this context, the thing that was really troubling him was that he had invested and loved a man named Judas. 
He had been chosen to walk and be a friend, to be a ministry partner, and Judas' heart had turned against Christ. And in the midst of that, Christ, indicating his humanity, he is troubled in spirit over the reality of who Judas is and what he has become. But I want to make this statement this morning because it's important for us to see this. Did Jesus love Judas or hate Judas? He loved him. He loved Judas. And all through, he has continually to offer Judas an opportunity of relationship, and though Judas will not choose it. And one of the things that's important for us to see this morning is this, is that none of us are exempt in our own life of having people in and around us who may turn their back on us. Jesus himself has this in his own life here. And so the fact that he is not immune from this reality of having people walk away from us and and just turn their back and say things and do things, um, this reality is also the potential for you and I as well. And he was concerned about Judas stepping away from the light of the world and stepping into his own darkness of his own sin, of his own heart, and being so corrupt by the darkness in his own life that he will not be rescued. There's been a big move over the last 20 years or so of people trying to feel better about Judas and trying to get him into heaven. I just don't think there's any indication that we're going to see Judas. I think he was remorseful. I think that there was regret that was there, but I do not think that Judas repented. Part of that is connected to something in John 17 um, that Jesus speaks about him. So this is a man who fully turned his heart against Christ in every way. He had, watch this, he had tasted along the way the goodness of what it was like to be near Jesus. And in the end, he detested it. He had no desire for it. He didn't want to walk. He didn't want to adjust to the agenda and the purpose and the plan of God. So Jesus knows on this night that Satan will enter Judas. He knows that he's been bought off for 30 pieces of silver. He knows that he has been stealing. Jesus knows everything that is taking place on this night. And his heart is troubled. Why? Because he loved Judas. And he's thinking about the things that are going to be, be true about Judas's life. Now, Jesus is not fooled, but the other 11 were completely fooled. They had no idea that Judas is stealing. I believe that they found this out later. This is a revelation that came to them later about him. They, Judas looked apart. He was the absolute. He could get a crown for it. Not a great crown to get. He could get a crown for the greatest hypocrite in the history of the world. Peter didn't know who he was. James and John couldn't recognize. Bartholomew couldn't recognize. None of them could recognize what was truly going on in the heart of Judas. And so Judas wasn't made to, but he willingly stepped into the darkness of hell's fire and betrayed the Lord. So I I think we have to ask the question, why did Jesus choose Judas? Why did Jesus choose someone that he knew would be a betrayer? If you remember last week in here, we talked about that many of these things that are taking place, even the betrayal of Judas, was moving things along, and God always does this. He moves things along in line with Scripture. So even the betrayal of Judas was moving things along in line with Scripture, which is exactly the way that Christ does things. 
So let me tell you why Judas was chosen. And you might find it interesting and a little bit perplexing. But in Luke chapter 6, we get this perspective from Luke writing in verse 12. He said, And in these days, Jesus went out to a mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples. There was a bigger group of people following them at this time. And he chose from them twelve. So there's a bigger group. He chose twelve of them whom he named apostles. And I want you to watch this. Why was Judas chosen? He was chosen because after a long night of prayer of Jesus talking to his father, the father said, when you go back down and the sun rises, you're going to choose twelve of them. And one of the twelve is going to be a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. He's from the city of Kerioth, and you will choose him. We've talked about this over and over in our study of the Gospel of John. Jesus never said anything that he didn't hear from the Father, and he never did anything that he didn't see the Father doing. So what did the Father tell Jesus as they prayed? That Judas would be one who would be chosen to be a part of the twelve who would eventually be the fulfillment of Scripture in the betrayal of Jesus. So why was Judas chosen? He was chosen because he was in the will of God and purpose of God to be one of the twelve. And again, earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks about that in verse 70. Listen to these words. This is about probably 18 months into the the three-year ministry of Christ. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And again, this indicates to you and I that even in our lives, in Christian spiritual circles, there will be people who potentially could betray us, turn against us and say false things against us because they are into following Christ, part of the church, in relationship for their own means. But let me tell you this, how do we navigate this? Jesus knew that he was supposed to choose Judas. Jesus knew that Judas would be one who would betray. And so all along, what did Jesus trust in? He trusted in the full revelation of his father that Judas needed to be right beside Jesus, though he knew this. And Jesus found his great comfort in the midst of what was going to happen and take place in the betrayal of a traitor's kiss that he would choose Judas. What becomes our great comfort in the midst of our pain when people turn their back on us or they're using us for their own agenda and it's clear that we come to know that we have been used. We haven't been loved, we've been abused or we've been rejected or whatever the case is. Our great comfort is the same very comfort that comforted Christ. We don't live for the honor and recognition of other people. We live for God's glory and to live in such a way that our obedience gives him great praise. And sometimes, you know this, we're just alone sometimes in our obedience. People around us, co-workers, whatever the case may be, sometimes it kind of feels alone in our culture today, does it not, to be a Christ follower. It just has spun out of control. So our great comfort is the same comfort that Christ embraced. He embraced the full revelation that Judas was to be in his life 
but he trusted the Father that everything was going to be good. And I tell you, Jesus understands betrayal. He understands the pain that comes from those who walk out on us who are closest to us. John MacArthur wrote about this, and I want to share some of the things that he wrote. Why was Jesus troubled? So he writes this. He says he was troubled because of the unrequited love of Judas. He was troubled because of the ingratitude in Judas's heart. He was troubled because he had a deep hatred of sin, and it was sitting right next to him, sin incarnate. He was troubled because he knew of the eternal destiny in hell. He was troubled because he could see with his omnipotent eye Satan moving around Judas. He was troubled because he had a knowledge of the sin of the betrayer and the terrors of eternal punishment. He was troubled because he sensed all that sin and death meant. He was troubled because he had an inner awareness that Judas Judas was a classic illustration of the wretchedness of sin. Sin which he would have to bear in his own body on the next day. Sin for which Jesus would be responsible and would die for. This is a heavy moment. And Jesus is troubled. And he's troubled because he loves Judas. And he knows who Judas is. And he knows the darkness of Judas's heart. So when Jesus chose Judas, it was a demonstration of the glory of Christ. As it all fell in line with the perfect will of the Father. So Jesus' spirit is troubled because he loves Judas. So now he speaks. And so Jesus is going to speak about the betraying heart of humanity. And so look what it says in the next part of 21. So he's troubled in spirit, and so he testified. And this was a shock in the room. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you that I've chosen, the twelve, one of you will betray me. And 22 says, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And again, these are incredibly shocking words to them. He has, he has just blown them away. What has he done? He has taken out his arm, outer garment. He tied a towel around his waist. He put water in a bowl. He got down and he washed their feet. The Son of God stooping low to, to minister to them and to serve them. He sat back down and they have talked. And now he tells them, one of you is about to betray me. You're going to turn your back on me and you're going to walk away. And so these words must have fallen incredibly heavy in the room. And again, by saying these words, Jesus is indicating that he knew that the events of the night were all fully under control. They were not out of control. They were fully under control. And the Father was at work and he was trusting the Father even in the midst of Judas's treachery. He was not, Christ was not being taken surprise again by any of that. And one of the great dangers in our life is this thing right here. Look at me. This is your great problem. You have a heart. And it can be greatly calloused. And and it can turn against God. And it become very, very hard. Where we want to live in our own way and have our own agenda. And this is what happened with Judas. All along the way, he began to notice, I don't like what he's saying. All he wants to talk about now, he's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed. And to, to be beaten and to be mocked and arrested and, and he will be killed and yet he will rise on the third day. And Judas is hearing this and he's like, no, no, no. 
You need to do what I want you to do. And what I want you to do is I want you to overthrow Rome. And so there's no doubt that likely this was a part of Judas's heart. So let me give three things that I think contribute to a religious person's heart. Judas is not an atheist. Judas is someone who's not denying that there's a God. This is someone who was very religious. As a matter of fact, when they were sent out two by two, do you remember what they did? They preached. Guess what Judas did? He preached the gospel. Guess what Judas did? He cast out demons. Guess what Judas did? He healed. He was used to heal the sick. This was a religious man who was a ministry partner of Jesus And yet, inside of his heart, over a three-year period of time, his heart grew calloused against Jesus. How? I see this in the church in general. I don't have anybody in mind as I look around the room this morning. But I've seen this, and it's present. Let me give you three things that are deeply damaging to our hearts for those who claim Christ. The first one is simply this. Many people want to use Christ for their own means. And they think that's gonna, that softens their heart, but it does not. It hardens the heart. Who's the Lord in this relationship, us or the Lord? We know the answer to that, right? The Lord is. And so here's Judas wanting to use Christ for his own means. That's why he slipped his hand in the money bag on a consistent basis to benefit himself. You hear this teaching today in our world. Christ is here to make you rich. To give you lots of material resources to do this and that. And he incredibly blesses, does he not? But he is not the means to our, our greatness. He is the greatness. And so many people like Judas want to use Christ and use God for their own means. Secondly, Judas was this way and we see this as well today. Many people hate the way God is at work in the world and they do not like the unfolding of His plan. Judas was not happy with the direction that Jesus was taking. So he kind of thought to himself, well, I'm just going to kind of get the ball rolling a little bit and I'm going to go talk to the religious leaders and uh, see if we can't get something going here. And I tell you, people still do this today. God is, God is blamed for so many things that are happening and taking place in the world. But people are never fair, and I know life is not fair. But God gets, God gets great blame for the dark days and the trouble that comes, but He never gets the glory when the sun shines. And His blessings come even to those who mock Him. But people want it both ways. They want to be able to blame Him, and then they don't want to give Him thanks. They want to take the credit themselves. And so here's Judah, Judas, and he's, he ultimately gets to a place where he hates Christ. And he doesn't like what Christ is doing. So again, he's going to take over. And he's going to try to use Christ to move along to his purposes. Here's the third thing that I think happened with Judas that we must be careful of. That we think that we can control the manner in which God works things. We are not in control. Now he thinks by taking 30 pieces of silver and Opening up a plan like, okay, I know where he's going to be. He's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll lead you out there. And I'll even walk up and I will kiss him on the cheek so that you will definitely know who it is that you're looking for. Judas thinks that he is in control 
and he is not. He tries to take control of the ministry of Jesus, but he cannot. He's going to try to push Jesus in the direction that Judas wants Jesus to go. And he probably looked at Christ and like, why are you delaying things? It's time. Let's get the show on the road. Let's deal with Rome. And Judas will eventually betray and he will do such a grievous act that he's just overwhelmed with what he does. And so Matthew records for us these words in Matthew 27, 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Oh, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. He changes his mind and he comes back and says, can we kind of undo the transaction? And the chief priest and he tells them, I have sinned in, by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, fulfilling Psalm 41, verse 9, he departed and he went out and he hanged himself. And he made such a mess of his life. He didn't even do that well. He hung himself on a branch that broke and he fell down and crashed into the rocks below and here's what i want to say this morning and and sometimes we come to these texts and and i can't make these real cheery i can't make this real cheery this morning so um but i can make it real your great problem and my great problem is this our hearts you hear this said in today's time well you know all of us are pretty good people the problem with that statement is it just contradicts the Bible. The Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked and must be redeemed by the power and the blood of Jesus. So we all must guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 Above all else, above all else, that word means put something on a high shelf that is hard to get to. Put it in a place of protection. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellspring of life. It is critical for us to watch out for our heart. In our world today, you just look around, and there's a betraying heart of humanity toward God. We see it all around us. It permeates our culture, and sometimes it is even in the church. So did you notice there, look at 22. Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, and then they start looking around the room uncertain of whom he spoke so james looks at bartholomew bartholomew looks over at simon simon looks at john john looks at peter peter looks at thaddeus and they're all going wow which one of us is the one that he's talking about let's move on to the next thing look at 23 so this is kind of hanging in the air. Jesus has said that they're going to betray. And so 23 says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now look up here just for a moment. Let me show you what's going to take place. We have tables where we slide chairs up underneath them. Back 2,000 years ago, you didn't. You had tables that were about this high. And you would lean on an elbow like this, and you would put your feet out like this. And then most of the tables were U-shaped. So in the text here, 
Jesus is leaning like this. John is right here. And Judas is on the back of Jesus. And so they're eating this way. So Peter's on the other side. He's not. Do you all remember? I, I find this interesting. They've been clamoring to be at what two places? The right and the left. So John is at the right. Judas is at the left, which is the place of honor. I want you to note, note that. The place of honor on this night, Judas is in that place. So they're leaning there, and Peter's over there, and he does a Peter thing. I'm surprised he didn't talk, but he goes, he probably did something like that. And so John knew Peter. And so John turns and says, Lord, who is it? Who is it in the room that you're speaking of that's going to betray you? And the Bible tells us this. Matthew gives us this insight. Listen to this. Matthew 26, 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to say to Jesus, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? So Peter goes, Lord, to me? Thaddeus says, Lord, Lord, are you talking about me? And then Matthew gives us a unique insight. He says, all 12 of them. And he tells us this in 26, 25. And Judas, who would betray him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. So watch this. Leaning. Is it I? Is it I? Judas is over here. Lord, is it I? And Judas, Jesus turns and says, yeah, it's you. So he tells him plainly and affirms. And Judas in that moment would have known what? Jesus knows. Jesus did know. But now Judas knows that Jesus knows what's in his heart. And here's what I want to point out now, and I think we have it up on the screen. How out of touch they were with their hearts. And how sometimes out of touch that we can be in regard to our hearts. They are shocked and they can't imagine that anybody in the room would have an agenda to betray Christ. They can't imagine that one would turn their back on him. And not, listen, not a one of them immediately thought, Judas, they didn't all point at Judas at the same time. Not a one of them pointed at Judas. Not a single one of them did. So as they looked around the room, the perfect hypocrite had fooled everybody in the room except Jesus. And again, with his omnipotent eye, he is looking around the room and he sees Satan at work. And see, watch, sees Satan in the room in the room and he's going to inhabit the body of Judas in just a moment so they all did a little quick inventory of their own heart and they couldn't imagine that something like that would be inside of any of them but I'm here to tell you today have we seen enough pastors and ministry leaders fall in our lifetime our hearts are desperately wicked and evil if they are not under the control and the influence of Christ. Our heart always needs examining. We must consistently do so. So John uses this phrase in 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's been speculated over for the centuries. Did, did it mean that Jesus, he was the favorite? 
I, I don't think it necessarily means that. I think it means that I think John got to a place where he recognized, you know what, I am loved. And so I'm just going to refer to myself as loved. And if you read First John, he uses the phrase beloved over and over. He, he recognized we are loved by him, and he recognizes that even Jesus loved Judas on this night. And again, Peter, ever needing to know what something meant, motions to John for an inside scoop. He wants to know, probably wanting to make sure that it's not him. You know, a little bit later, Satan's going to, Jesus is going to tell Peter, you know, Satan has come to me and he wants to sift you like wheat tonight. And Peter, so that's going to take place and then you're going to deny me three times on this night. And knowing Peter, can you imagine this with me for a moment? He was wanting the information so that he could put a stop to it possibly. Okay, if somebody's going to do this, I'm fixing it. He's a fixer. I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to deal with this. But it was not that way. So the disciple that was leaning, John, leaning back against Jesus, says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus tells him, it's the one that I take the bread and I dip it into the morsel and I give it to them. So again, they are all just incredibly taken back by what has been communicated to them. And I just want to remind us, our heart, your heart, is capable of evil things. My heart is capable of evil things. And again, that is why we must surrender to Christ and be in touch with our heart. Now I want to talk about this. I want to talk about the depth of Christ's love in regard to Judas, the evidence of this. And I want to talk about the destruction of Satan. Look at 26 and 27. So Jesus answers John. He's answering John's question. Who is it? He said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas right next to him on the left side. The son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly now as john writes this he's very familiar with the with the setting there were two unique places one to the right but the guest of honor at a meal was always to the left and you would do this so there's this bread that's there jesus takes it he dips it in this 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 mixture of vinegar and salt and dates and raisins and other things and he dips it in there and he hands the piece of bread to judas and so judas is holding it in the hand. And I've wondered what John must have thought in that moment when he's just asked Jesus, who is it? And he says, well, it's the one that I give the bread to after I've dipped it into. What did John immediately think as he thought, as he watched Jesus hand that to John or hand that to, to Judas? And so the special honor, kind of like we do at a toast and a banquet, was giving this bread to the person that was there. It was a sign, listen to this, a sign of friendship. And a sign of courtesy in the first century. So once more, even in the midst of this night, in grace, in love, Jesus Jesus offers Judas, extends grace to him, extends love to him another time, and offers this to him. Jesus 
is reaching out to Judas all the way up to the very end. And I want you to notice the depth of Christ's love here. Jesus does not take revenge at any time in those three years on Judas. He doesn't alienate him from the rest of the eleven. Nobody in the room has any clue that Judas has this in his heart. And so here's Jesus. He's got this man who's going to betray him. He loves him. He loves him. He extends mercy and grace to Judas all along the way. And so instead of, okay, let's have a little, let's have a little church biz, early church business meeting. We've got to discipline Judas for what's in his heart and what he's about to do. Jesus doesn't do that on this night. He, instead, he in grace offered the prize morsel in the seat of honor where Judas is sitting, the betrayer seated in the place of honor and offered the special food from the host. He didn't tell the twelve, hey, he didn't do this, didn't point. He didn't do any of that. He's continually, tenderly, up until the last moment, offering Judas a chance. You know what Christ did with Judas? He treated Judas with the exact same grace and patience that he did with all of the others. And yet all the way to the end, Jesus exhibited authentic love to him. He offered up grace to him until until the very end. And Judas has not earned this offer by any kind of works. He wasn't more special than anybody else, but it was offered to him in grace and does not God do this still today with those who mock him there's a great lesson in here to learn from Christ and how to deal with people who despise us and who mock us the writer of Hebrews writes these words in 12 3 consider him Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I tell you what, Christians in Afghanistan this week have learned about hostility. They knew it before. I know of someone who knows someone who has contact with people that they are there, and so they pointed me to a direction I went to read this week. They were pulling, over the last 20 years, there was a church established in Afghanistan. There was freedom that was there. And they were going after pastors and pulling them out in the streets and slaughtering them this week. So how do you you deal with that? Well, you look to Jesus who was slaughtered and you learn from Him. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews says, Consider Him, those of you who are in the midst of persecution, who endured from sinners such hostility, so that you yourself will not grow weary or give up and be faint-hearted. And I tell you, ever since the fall of our first parents in the, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, this moment that we were looking at was coming and is about to come to fruition. The Son of God will be on the cross bearing our sin. And the world ever since then has continued to mock God's love and to mock God's grace and God's mercy. The Trinity has had to deal with the extreme wickedness of the world for century after century after century. 
quickly in the ministry of Jesus, he dealt with great blasphemies toward him from the religious leaders. Church history is littered with the mocking and martyrdom of God's people. And in 2021, in our American culture, at every turn, Jesus is still derided and, and seen as irrelevant and, and, and not true and not the Son of God. And yet in the midst of all of that, in the last 2,000 years since the death of Christ, God has done this to those who have mocked Him. He has been unbelievably patient. Fulfilling what Peter writes, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So we see in Judas the great danger. I really need you to hear these words because this is, these are truthful statements as we begin to finish here. We see in Judas the grave danger of having a minimal and superficial perspective of our salvation or salvation. For three years, Judas looked in the face of Jesus. He watched Jesus do great miracles. He listened to unbelievable sermons. He asked Jesus questions. He spent his life for three years with Jesus. He saw and experienced the work of Christ in other people's lives, and yet it never took root in Judas's heart. And this is what happens. A superficial, shallow perspective of sin will always lead to a surface view and shallow view of salvation, which will inevitably lead to an artificial perspective of everything else in life. If we don't get that sin is a big deal, and that the cross is a big deal, the payment paid for us, then we will not have the kind of perspective of what happened at the cross, the significance of the love of God that has been extended to you and I and to people who are lost. Every one of us in the room this morning who has come to know Christ as Savior, we are different and transformed because of grace, not because we have earned anything. We were not much different than Judas at one point in time in our life. We were just as lost, just as much a God-hater as he was. But we are different now. Why? Because of grace alone. And I tell you, there's a lot of godly people in our church that you can learn from. But that's not enough. Judas had in Jesus the greatest model you could ever have. And yet he turned his back on him. Before him was a sinless example of three years. He never saw, can you imagine, if I hang out with some of you and you hang out with me, before the day's over, you'd see me sin. I'd be selfish or something. I'd maybe, maybe not a felony I would commit, but I'd have some misdemeanors on my record. And we'd all be that way. He watched Jesus for three years, never sin. And he had this great example. In the end, he turned his back on the sinless one. No doubt Satan would have been looking for someone to buy in in the fulfillment of the 30 pieces and he found that in Judas there's another great lesson to learn from Judas as we finish up deep-seated hypocrites will also be in Christian leadership 
It was in the leadership group of Christ. And sometimes in the church, that's why it's so important to watch leaders in churches to make sure that the heart of the leader is right and authentic. Judas looked, he spoke, he lived, he acted, he quoted the scriptures, all of it looking like the part. He never looked like a villain, by the way. Never did he look like a villain until afterwards. And again, nobody in the room said, oh, I bet it's you, Judas. They're looking around the room, and they can't imagine that anybody in the room would do that. And again, I wonder what John thought as Judas got up, and Jesus said, what you're about to do, go. And Jesus, watch, sets this in motion. I want you to go and do what you're going to do. Because I have come to embrace it all. I will drink everything that the Father has so that people at life point can have the hope of salvation in Christ. And God has never fooled. Judas didn't fool him. And so it says in 28, if you look there, 28 and 29, as we've finished in 30, no one at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him to go out and do it quickly. Some of them thought, and again, they had no idea that Judas was the betrayer because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And boy, was it night. This is just not the sun's gone down. This is the darkness of the human heart. He is going to betray the sinless Son of God into the hands of evil men. Jesus has become this great disappointment to Judas. He can no longer affirm the agenda and everything that's going on, and so he will betray. Have you asked yourself lately why you are following? Why am I following? Have I asked myself that question? And what are we going to do? Listen to this. What are we going to do if things don't get better in this country morally? So we have grown up in a country where it's Christianity equals comfort. It's not that way in many, many places of the world. So in many ways we don't really understand. So, so here's Judas He's got a problem with Jesus' agenda and Jesus' plan. He doesn't want Jesus to die. He doesn't understand the significance of it. So he's going to manipulate and try to get Jesus to do what Judas wants him to do. So what are we going to do when this life, what if our country doesn't go the way we want it to go? For the rest of our lives, is it going to be worth it to follow Jesus? I will say this morning, it is. If it costs us, it's worth it to have our heart in the hands of God and secure in our relationship. It's possible that Judas wanted to sit up front in the new kingdom. Everybody else of the twelve wanted the same thing. And he wanted a throne. And he wanted the comfort and the glory that came with it. What if all we're going to get is the cross of persecution and hardship? Is Jesus going to be worth pursuing?
Now I want to deal with this as we finish. Very important. Was he made to do this? Old Testament scripture said somebody was going to betray. Nobody knew in the Old Testament who that person was. So, so was Judas made to do this? And I would want to just put forth this morning that this was going to happen, it would be fulfilled, and that Judas chose this path. And God knew that Judas would choose this path. He knew this would be the case with him. And so therefore, is Judas responsible for his sin? Absolutely. He's responsible for his sin. He doesn't get to go, oh, I have an out, I have an out. I was made to do this. He was going to do it, and he chose the path. See, if that was the case, he could blame God for what he did. And God doesn't get to be accused of doing wrong. He was responsible for his actions, as you and I are. Later the next day, or in the morning, he will feel remorse, but he will not repent. He will throw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple fulfilling scripture and he will go out and he will hang himself and Judas's life has a bitter 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 ending and his life should cause you and I to reflect upon our own life today to soberly examine ourselves and again verse 28 tells us nobody at the table had any idea why Jesus said this to him Jesus knew And it was not until the cross, some kind of revelation, I'm sure they talked about Judas in those 40 days, that the disciples understood what took place and what was taking place in the room. The sovereign plan of God was unfolding in their midst. Let me close with this thought. I have no predictions. I'm not a prophet. I'm just a man who likes to tell the words of Jesus that he spoke that have been recorded to us. But I am a student of history. Every great democracy has lasted about 200 years before it crumbles from within. We're over that 200-year mark. And I'm not saying that it has to be this way. I'm just saying this. God, God, God could revive this land again. God could also not revive this land again. And so what that means is this, is just as it was that night in the upper room, who was in the upper room also with Jesus and the twelve? Satan. He is going to continue to be at work in this country, turning the hearts of men and women from their maker, from the offer of salvation, And things could get worse. I don't know if they're going to get worse. They seem to be almost weekly. And if they continue to do that in the generations ahead and in the years ahead, how will you and I respond? And the only way to respond is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we learn from him how to deal with a hostile culture that's against Christianity, that's against the glory of Christ. And we learn from him that sometimes he was like a lamb led to the slaughter 
And sometimes we don't say anything and then sometimes we boldly say things because sometimes did not Jesus boldly say things. So we, we are innocent as doves and wise as serpents. And we live in the midst of a culture that is crumbling. It is crumbling. We would agree about that. It is crumbling all around us. So in the midst of that, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We live the way He did. We learn who He is. We, learn, we say the things that He said. He, he is our supreme model. And ultimately, guess what? Everything is all right. Why? Because I go back to the first point. God is sovereign over all things. He wasn't surprised by COVID. He's not surprised by Afghanistan. He's not surprised by anything in the world this day. And though maybe we can't see what he's up to, we know this, that he moves things along in the path of what? Scripture. And he's going to accomplish his purpose. And his people... Because of that work on the cross, have great hope no matter what happens around us because of who He is. And so we're going to sing a song here in a moment. And it's a prayerful song. I love the song. It's one of my, it's in my top ten list. Lord, I need you. I need you. Every hour, every moment, every day. We need you. And let's sing it to Him. Let's make it our prayer in this day that we would say to Him, we need you to come and move and awaken your people again and bring restoration to our country. Let's pray.